Hello, this is Peter. I'm Mel. And, and this, this is, is the, the Richmond Podcast. Podcast. Hello and welcome. We are here today with Dr. Timothy Quinnen. Dr. Quinnen has a PhD in higher education. He's a published author on a number of different topics, including leadership in higher education culture. He has 38 plus years of senior leadership in higher education, and he is in his seventh year as president and CEO of Richmond Graduate University. Welcome, Dr. Quinnen. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Mel. It's great to be here with you both. Good morning. Great Thanks for being you. here. So we wanted to talk today a little bit about innovation and innovation leadership. Thinking about higher education, innovation is about changing the field, not just doing something new. So with Richmond's 50-plus year history, how do you see Richmond changing the field of higher education? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we were talking about this before we came on the air, and uh, innovation is something that universities are really good at speaking about as far as you know what's in their institutional DNA. But the truth is, innovation is difficult to execute in higher education because mm-hmm. many universities are so large and so bureaucratic that it's difficult to implement change that is wholly and holistically embraced. But Richmond's a different kind of animal. Um, It prides itself on being agile and being nimble, seeing what's going on in the marketplace, and not necessarily, you know, responding without critically thinking about what's going on in the marketplace, but being able to, like, foresee what trends are happening and being ahead of them in terms of both the learning curve and the administrative curve to make sure that we're providing the optimal environments for our students. And so what I would say the great set-apart is for Richmond, we thrive on change. We thrive on trying new things and being unafraid. Maybe because we are still smaller, we are a full service university, but we still are not you know, wed to bureaucratic policies and procedures that I think inhibit adaptation and change at other universities. And we're not afraid. Um, you know, I think one of the hallmarks of my leadership style and my leadership team style is that, you know, we know good things will come from what I call thoughtful experimentation. Mm-hmm. So why not do those things? Why not be bold and unafraid? Uh, certainly do your research and don't throw darts at a dartboard. Know that there's an intentionality to any new program or idea that you want to test, but move forward with it. You'll never know how good you can be if you're you know, stuck in the status quo. Mm, That's a great point. Mm -hmm. It makes me think of conversations that even you and I have had around thoughtful leadership, intentionality, you know, and we obviously as Richmond have a a niche, you know, of our field and industries that that we're focused on, that we're innovating in. As a leader, what do you prefer or how do you focus your energy in? Do you prefer motivation? or inspiration when it comes to your team? Sure. I'm going to have a little bit of fun with your question and flip it. (laughs) Not surprised. (laughs) A motivation and inspiration. I would say the critical prelude to that is vision. Mm. You know, there's this great scriptural quote from Proverbs where there's no vision, the people perish. And the vision doesn't have to be top down. It doesn't have to be the board of trustees or mine. It needs to be a shared vision. And as you both know, Peter in particular, when you do strategic planning and strategic ideation, which is really the kind of the communal brainstorming before the, any kind of a plan is written, that's where the vision emerges. And I think if people have a stake in creating the vision and they know that their ideas and their voice is somehow reflected into that larger conversation that ends up being distilled down into what's included in a plan or a map for institutional growth, that they are excited about it. There's kind of an organic motivation to make that vision become reality. And people are inspired, I hope, 
and I think, to help contribute in any way they can to achieve that vision. So they're not mutually exclusive. I think mm-hmm. that, you know, they all kind of like converge and uh, we come up with something special that gets people excited about coming to work, lets them feel like they have skin in the game and a larger enterprise or project that matters to them and that they're all working together and synchronously to achieve something they're excited about that's going to move the organization forward. I think that was uh, one of the biggest culture shifts here at Richmond in my time was seeing the launch of the first strategic plan. Just uh, beforehand, we were every department worked in silos. They were doing their own things. They had their own metrics. Everybody had goals, but they were so separated, and nobody knew what really was going on everywhere else. And then when you came in and we brought in that first plan where everybody got together and had these discussions and created that vision, it really changed the way we operated. We started working interdepartmentally. We, were, we had teams of people that normally never got together or were only together on certain committees, and suddenly we were all working toward these different uh, but same goals, and mm-hmm. it, it definitely changed the entire culture here at Richmond mm-hmm. for the better. And I think what you're talking about, Peter, is that's one of the end products of that whole collective visioning piece is mm-hmm. collaboration. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, I, I know that most of this podcast is about strategic planning, and I certainly don't want to turn it into that because I know many of your listeners and many people think of strategic planning as about as exciting as going to an insurance convention <laughs> and looking at actuarial tables. But I know you don't feel that way, and I don't feel that way, and I don't think Mel does. And um, So getting back to your question, I think those three things, vision is to me the real driver that motivates people and inspires them. And the great thing about it is, If they are inspired by it, then they're going to work together more passionately and more collaboratively to, like, feel good about the outcomes that result. Mm -hmm. I've definitely heard that, even in just feedback and conversations with students and faculty. That has trickled down effectively because I think when you ask people why they're here and why they feel connected or why they're doing what they're doing, everyone does seem to have a really clear answer and they mean it and you see it playing out in not just the classrooms and what's being taught, but in the way meetings are led and the way we have conversations and collaboration. So I definitely have seen that play out. Yeah, and I think that is that is something inspiring to students, faculty and mm-hmm. staff is that, you know, being a small university, every voice really does matter here. We read every comment, we listen to every thought, um, everything that that is presented to um, administration comes up, gets included in where we're going in the direction that Richmond is going. So I think that's one of the best things about, um, as you said, that small university, nimble, um, Mm -hmm. agile, Mm -hmm. able to do those things. But you know what, Peter? I I think even as we grow, I don't think we'll ever lose that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. We're significantly larger in terms of enrollment and staffing than when I got here in 2017. And people pride themselves here on being accessible, wanting to solve problems for colleagues, for the people that work for them, and certainly for students. And I think that that's one of the great hallmarks of the Richmond experience. And I think, I love hearing what Mel just said and what you just said. I think students have absorbed that, and they see that personified by their instructors and the administrators that they work with, the counselors they talk to. I think that that that's one of the great differentiators of our school, and I'm really, really pleased about that. I think that's great. I think uh, well put, and it's baked into the DNA here at Richmond, Mm -hmm. and that's not going anywhere. Nope, it isn't. It's good. So we were talking a little bit before about some of the innovations that we did make here at Richmond, especially considering shifting our entire program online for a weekend, which um, talking to other people in the field around in and around Atlanta and Chattanooga, most schools took weeks, weeks to get their courses back online. So I think um, that's that's a great innovation we did make. And getting the online program, that sort of was the impetus that got us 
to know that we could do it mm-hmm. and brought the uh, the first online program here fully online at, at Richmond. Some other innovations that you've made here at Richmond include the four-day work week. That's a new huge one and something that I'll say I've never heard in higher education <laughs> um, and did not know was possible um, until we did implement it. So if you want to talk about that, we can go ahead and talk about that. Or uh, my question for you is, what's next for Richmond? Yeah, let's let's just briefly talk about the four-day work week. <laughs> you know, that was something that earlier in my career when I began, you know, working my way up through different leadership roles at universities, starting out entry level and, and, you know, just thinking 20 years ago, 25 years ago, you know, then 15 years ago, then 10 years. If I ever get to the place where I can shape institutional culture, you know, what are some of the things that I'd like to do that is definitely different than what you see across the landscape of higher ed. And um, the four-day work week, you know, I'm not going to claim credit for that. I mean, as far as, yes, I implemented here, but it wasn't an idea that I came up with on my own. They've experimented with that in Western Europe, particularly Scandinavian countries, for some time. And I did some research on that and read really interesting follow-up data and how employees were happier, they had better staff, both recruitment and retention. And that to me, the real like important data takeaway was that people felt like they had a greater loyalty and love for their employer because it allowed them more work-life balance. So when I was, you know, thinking a few years ago, because the one thing that I do spend a lot of time on, especially when I'm not here in the offices, what more can we do for our employees? I mean, they really are the institution, right? And I want to create like the healthiest, most optimal, exciting, mm-hmm. you know, inspiring workplace, <laughs> some of the, you know, adjectives we used earlier. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I thought, why not try something like that? I mean, who's going to find a counter argument to like a four day work week being a bad thing? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know what you could come up with that would negate or neutralize the rationale for that. Anyway, I do know that some of the other institutions I worked at that were larger would be like, well, it's easy to think about doing that if you don't have multiple residence halls and students living on campus and, you know, a student union that's got to provide meals, you know, and and activities. And none of those things apply to us. We're a focused, specialized, faith-based graduate program, and we don't have on-campus residents. So knowing that the only argument you could make against it would be based on kind of undergraduate campus life type dynamics, which do not apply here. It just seemed like a really, really logical, exciting, argument impervious (laughs) step to take. So we did it on an experimental basis, as you know. And of course, uh, (laughs) I don't think you needed a crystal ball to at least expect emotionally people would be excited about it. But I charged two of my vice presidents to do kind of a comprehensive evaluation of it in the aftermath, not just gauging people's happiness with it and, you know, the work-life balance, but was there any kind of hit in our productivity? And what we found out was not necessarily counterintuitive to what I thought, but what the general public might have, that our productivity actually went up. You know, and some of this stuff is cliched about work harder, not wait, work smarter, not harder. (laughs) Excuse me. But the reality is, you know, whatever the measure was of being able to process applications, working through some sticky administrative issues, just student success, Mm -hmm. uh, both in the classroom and out, people actually performed at a higher level, Mm -hmm. which to me wasn't exceptionally surprising because, you know, I know enough about life at my advanced age that if people are happier, 
they're going to probably perform better in mm -hmm. their workplace. Mm -hmm. uh, they're going to be more productive. Because when you bring that good energy to anything you do in life, mm -hmm. you know, you usually get better results, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. So it, to me, that was one of those calculated risks, a four-day work week mm -hmm. that others weren't doing. But again, as you heard me say earlier, I'm not afraid about taking what I think are intelligent risks mm -hmm. and ones that, you know, intuitively make sense to me. So that played out well, maybe even better than I thought. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, it was a win-win. So what comes next? Uh, yeah, what I don't comes know. Next? I don't know. I, I want to think about that. I want to ponder <laughs> okay. the possibilities a little longer. One comment about the four-day work week. Everyone really appreciated, I think, the space to practice a little bit mm. and to find out the quality of life, also improved creativity. And people, you know, change is hard, period, mm -hmm. for many different personalities, you know, and an institution to shift. But allowing teams and individuals to practice what it looked like to shorten meetings mm -hmm. or work collaboratively in a different way. And I heard a lot of feedback that that there, was something that helped a lot mm -hmm. in in making it successful and I think we're just a lot more intentional now. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're taking meetings that used to go, as you said, right. for an hour that can be done in 15 minutes. Yeah. You know, there's no reason to, to draw these things out knowing that we're on that shortened schedule. And it feels like we can be more flexible now, which I really, really enjoy. And I think that opportunity to practice was really valuable, too, because we had to shift up our time management. Mm -hmm. You know, getting everything done in, in four days is different. There's less time to waste in those meetings. And there are times that we cancel meetings now and we email beforehand hey, is there anything actually important that needs to be discussed <laughs> in this meeting instead of just having a meeting to have a meeting mm -hmm. because it's on our weekly schedule, mm -hmm. yeah. which I think is just a, a huge time saver. And, and as you said, allows for more time to think creatively and collaboratively. If I can make one more observation on the four-day work week, this goes back to where I was before. The one thing about three decades in higher education, probably any organization, is hopefully you acquire some wisdom, but if not, you at least acquire perspective. And I have never understood, and I never understood even earlier in my career, but pretty much at every step along the way during that time, why I would have supervisors that equated productivity with 12 hours a day in your office. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. Anyone that really thinks about human nature would know that that would be spirit killing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I worked for some bosses before where, you know, if you weren't in your office at seven in the morning and you didn't stay till seven at night, you were somehow not a team player or contributing to what they thought was the work of the office. And that was just utter nonsense to me. Mm -hmm. People can be productive in bursts, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're really, really lucky and I'm not necessarily one of these you can be productive for eight hours at a pop with no breaks but I don't think so mm -hmm. um, so <laughs> Peter and Mel but your comments about working more intelligently uh, making meetings matter mm -hmm. rather than just you know okay this is on my schedule every Monday for an hour and a half and you know 35 minutes of it we're talking about who won the baseball game last night or what kind of dog food our, our pet likes <laughs> make your time meaningful and matter and then you know let people get those periods where they can then work independently and creatively or even take little breaks but make the hours that you are there more meaningful and more productive rather than just be married to this notion that we're eight to five and we're five days a week and you actually are expected to be here before eight and stay later than five that was just always so illogical to me that I'm glad that we had the chance to experiment with the four-day work week and see that people were producing at a higher level, but that they were also excited about it because they didn't work in this spirit-killing environment. Mm -hmm. That's good. Yeah. All right, so 
last question sure. for, for this for this time. We've been talking so much about this podcast, um, <laughs> all of the different topics we'd like to discuss, all of the benefits, what our audiences are, who we can reach with this podcast. What are you excited about? Well, I'm excited because as we were talking about before we came, you know, on air. I think this is a chance for Richmond to reach wider circles, whether it's prospective students, whether it's friends in the community. And that's always desirable. I mean, we think that we're a best-kept secret, but we don't want to be a secret. We want people to know about what we're doing because it really is transformational and not to necessarily to just recite our mission statement, but we do want to be transformational in the lives of individuals and communities because what we offer is something really unique and really important. We provide the highest quality academic programs. We're preparing people for careers of service in clinical mental health and in ministry where they're going to go out and affect the course of the lives of individuals and families and communities in a really profound and meaningful way, right? Mm -hmm. And so why wouldn't you want more people to know about who you are and what you do. And I think the reality is to have a university that's really done a magnificent job of integrating academics and theory and science with applied clinical outreach in community mental health centers and interns throughout organizations, you know, and ministers going out there and and helping people heal and grow spiritually and connect with the Lord. That work is really important. So the more people that can know about us and the service we've provided to the community, the really strong academic programs we have, and the fact that we want to be a light in greater Atlanta, in greater Chattanooga, and and really around the world, because now we have an online presence and an emerging global presence. Mm. How could that not be something that you want to, you know, move forward on? So to me, podcasting is really exciting because yeah, there might be a slight age differential. You know, in the old days, people would just put out flyers and, you know, then, then things grew to the point where there were actual websites where you could find out about an organization. But the fact that radio and television are not coin of the realm anymore in terms of monopolizing the way that any organization reaches out to potential clients or students or friends and podcasting is the new prime uh, medium to do that. You know, we're excited about it. Mm. Absolutely. If you had to give one piece of advice to an aspiring leader, Mm. um, what would you say? Don't be afraid to take chances and to not necessarily follow the herd and to be an outlier. There are risks inherent with that. So that may not work for everyone. I get that. Mm. But I, I think that you shouldn't be afraid to be different and to be confident in the idea of let's keep what's working well. But let's also not be averse to taking some thoughtful risks. Yeah, that's great. I'll tell you what, I am always very happy and excited to work at a place that that does push that Mm -hmm. envelope. Mm -hmm. Same. Well, thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. Uh, We're also excited about the podcast and can't wait to hear what's coming. So we appreciate your time. And for everyone listening, stay tuned. We'll be back. All right. All right. right. Thank you both. All right. right. Bye.